This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation, and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Now, if you're from Minnesota, you'll probably agree that fall is one of the best seasons of the year. When the leaves start to change, the air starts to cool off, Minnesota is really, truly stunning in the fall. With millions of acres of forest that turn all shades of red, orange, and yellow, or you can find really spectacular beauty everywhere you look in the state. Rivers and streams come alive, hunters are excited for fall hunting, kids are going back to school, the apple trees are ready to be picked, the pumpkin patches are ready for families to come visit, and for farmers, they're gearing up for harvest. The corn and the soybean fields are slowly turning golden brown, and, and it's just a great time of the year. I've got so many fall memories as a kid playing in the leaves piled high in the yard. Having grown up in the 70s and 80s, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones or cable TV. We had, we had, we played outside, especially in the, in the fallen leaves. You piled them high and we'd, we'd pile them up in the yard. We'd jump in the leaves and that smell of fall, that smell of fallen dried leaves. If you grew up here in Minnesota, you know that smell or the smell of burning leaves, sometimes in a, a burn pile or sometimes under the sunlight dot of a magnifying glass. Now, I'm dating myself there. Not sure my kids have ever played with a magnifying glass. I guess I got to ask them. I'm never, I'm not sure. Uh, but here in Southeast Minnesota, there are so many fun fall traditions that really make this area such a great place to live, work, and raise your family. Pope Francis became the first Jesuit pope, the first pope from the Americas, and the first pope from the Southern Hemisphere. The anticipation intense, the crowd 150,000 strong jammed into St. Peter's Square. White smoke billowed and the largest bell in the basilica signaled the election of a new pope, and within minutes the square filled 
to capacity. And then. This is the moment. The moment that two Chechnya-born Islamic brothers detonated two bombs at the Boston Marathon in Massachusetts, killing three and injuring 264 others. This is an ABC News special report. Good afternoon, I'm George Stephanopoulos in New York. We're interrupting your program because there have been two explosions today at the Boston Marathon. Two explosions near the finish line just a short while ago. You see the scene right there, explosions right by the finish line. The winners had passed several hours before. Some stragglers were coming by, but several people on the scene are said to be injured. One man whose bid number was 17528, Frank Dwight of North Carolina. The largest tornado ever recorded occurred over rural areas of central Oklahoma this year. Tornado emergency is now coming. We do have a tornado emergency for this storm that is moving into more right now. This is a tornado emergency. This is higher than a tornado warning. This is the most significant of all warnings. This rain-wrapped multiple vortex tornado was the widest tornado ever recorded. Touched down just a few minutes after 6 p.m. in May, about 8 miles southwest of El Reno, Oklahoma. It lasted about 45 minutes and it traveled 16 miles before dissipating. The monster tornado ripped through mostly rural areas and impacted very few structures, fortunately. At its peak, it measured 2.6 miles wide and winds up to 302 miles per hour, among the highest observed wind speeds on Earth. The year was 2013. According to the U.S. News and World Report, the Mayo Clinic Rochester, the number one hospital in the country. It's the seventh year in the row they've gotten the title. Rankings are based on survival, patient experience, nurse staffing, advanced technology, patient services, and reputation with other specialists. Mayo Clinic president and CEO said on the achievement... This Southeast Minnesota is known for the Mayo Clinic, by far its largest employer located in downtown Rochester. William Mayo settled his family in Rochester in 1864, and he started a sole proprietorship medical practice that evolved under his two sons, Will and Charlie Mayo, as the Mayo Clinic. Focusing on integrated health care, education, and research, it's grown to now employing over 4,500 physicians and scientists and nearly 60,000 administrative and allied health staff across three major campuses in Rochester, Jacksonville, Florida, and Scottsdale, Arizona. The Mayo Clinic has ranked number one in the United States for seven consecutive years, drawing over one million patients annually from all 50 states and over 130 countries. Back in 2013, Rochester had around 110,000 people, and every other person you talked to in that area had a spouse, a child, or a friend that worked for the Mayo Clinic. Some of us sarcastically referred to the Mayo Clinic as Mother Mayo. As Rochester grew, more and more people moved into the many rural communities around the city, and one of the largest growing areas during this time was located just 12 miles west of the city. This area is called Dodge County. The area of Dodge County is actually named after the first governor of Wisconsin, Henry Dodge, and was a hunting and battleground for the Sioux, Sauk, and Fix Indians who wandered into this territory back in the 1800s. The county seat is a quaint little historical community called Manterville. It's named after Peter and Riley Manter, brothers who settled there back in 1853. 
The south branch of the Middle Fork of the Zumber River runs through this small community, and it's surrounded by a landscape of rolling hills and the prairie farmland. One of the oldest cities in Minnesota, this community is known for Mantraville Limestone, which is evident by the limestone buildings in the historic downtown area. The Manterville Historic District, along with other locations outside of the district, is listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. Manterville is also host to one of the state's oldest restaurants, the historic Hubble House, constructed by John B. Hubble back in 1854. The original hotel, a 16 by 24 foot log structure, was the only building in town having a double roof thereby allowing room in the chamber for guests. The current three-story structure was built a couple years later and immediately became an important stopping place along the trail from the Mississippi to St. Peter. The Hubble House has been host to many famous people over the years. Over the decades, being near the Mayo Clinic, the small restaurant attracted big names. Signatures on placemats show the Hubble House who's who. In the 1800s, we had uh, the Mayo Brothers. From the famous, like Senator Alexander Ramsey, to the infamous. There's talk that Jesse James might have been through here on his way to Northfield. From first ladies, like Lady Bird Johnson, to commanders in chief. We had uh, President Ulysses Grant. We had uh, President Eisenhower. From stars on the screen, like Happy Days actress Marion Ross, to stars on the field. Mickey Mantle, yep. Cowboy singing star Roy Rogers ate here. He even brought along his famous horse, Trigger. <laughs> the records show the horse did not eat inside. John B. Hubble was also appointed by the governor as the first sheriff in Dodge County. Sheriff Hubble rented a room in a home just north of the Hubble House. It's now referred to as the Restoration House. The original jail cell is still located in the dirt floor basement of this building. The Dodge County Courthouse, the large limestone building at the top of the hill, built in the late 1860s, is also the oldest working courthouse in the state. After it was completed, the sheriff's office moved to the basement of the courthouse. It was in this office that the sheriff's office had its only documented escape. Frank McVeigh, who shot and killed Village Marshal Ole Havey from Hayfield, was being held there and escaped through a small window, while some speculated the sheriff fell asleep. McVeigh was apprehended a short time later and convicted of Dodge County's first fallen officer death. Dodge County bought the old gas station at the bottom of the hill in Manterville back in 1974 and they renovated it for the sheriff's office. Law enforcement for the county was run out of that location until 1991 when an east annex and structure were added to the original courthouse at the top of the hill. The sheriff's office was then moved to the East Wing and has been there ever since. The Dodge County Sheriff's Office back then consisted of the sheriff, chief deputy, captain, patrol sergeants, investigators, and patrol deputies. The office was also host to the 911 dispatch center. Serving initially as a sergeant and then as a captain during this really, really rough time with the sheriff's office was Loring Gunther. Loring grew up in Crystal, Minnesota. It's a Twin City suburb located northwest of Minneapolis. He graduated from Cooper High School back in 1988 and met his future wife, Debony, at work while he was going to college for law enforcement. 
Lori and I first met, I was a full-time second shift employee at Boise Cascade in Brooklyn Park. I worked there full-time and uh, second shift, and he had started working there part-time, kind of second shift. He went to school at uh, North Hennepin Community College. He was going for his law enforcement degree, and I was going to North Hennepin Community College during the day for graphic design, uh, art, and marketing. So he went to school full-time and worked part-time. I went to school part-time and worked full-time. After college, she started looking for a job. Now, job hunting for law enforcement back then was very, very different. He was a reserve officer for uh, Crystal, I believe, for a while, and also Big Lake for a while. You know, he applied to those places. I think he was looking to kind of stay closer to home. He was a city kid. I was a country girl. I grew up north of the cities. And at that time, when there were applications, when they did their interview, there were hundreds of applicants for these jobs. And they would sit in a big auditorium and they would take their, their test and get scored or whatever. And, you know, so he, he did apply some places up there. I think he was looking in places closer to home. He knew where I grew up in the country and was kind of fond of being out in the sticks. <laughs> So he had an opportunity to come down to, actually it was, he came down to Rochester and I believe it was a civic center. So he actually came down here and he tested for that and he, he did well. He was in like the top 25 and, um, you know, didn't get it and I think he was kind of disappointed. And then he heard about uh, Dodge County Sheriff's Department hiring a couple of positions, I believe it was at that time. And he talked to me, he says, you know, how would you feel if I applied for a sheriff's department position? And I said, well, you know, what's the difference? And he said, well, he said, probably wouldn't be as good a pay, you know, because Dodge is a rural county. And as soon as he said Dodge is a rural county, my ears perked up. I was like, oh, I, I said, you know what, go for it. Deb had about a year left to earn her degree, so Loring applied in Dodge County and he was hired. He came down and started his career with Dodge County while Deb finished her degree so she could move down to southeast Minnesota and join him. Loring's fun, positive attitude and his enthusiastic personality helped him quickly move up the ranks in Dodge County to the agency's first ever training sergeant, which was a new position created, allowing him to train and mentor new deputies coming in. He was uh, smart, and but kind and generous. He was funny. He'd always crack a joke, you know, about something to kind of try to lighten the mood. He loved to, to learn new skills and teach those skills that he had acquired. And in his 19 years as a peace officer, you know, he was his department's firearms instructor, use of force, field training, taser, chemical weapons. Uh, he worked with the hazardous entry team, as well as his involvement with the local DARE program um, and community programs, uh, such as uh, Southeastern Minnesota Toys for Tots campaign. And he also, in his spare time, uh, worked as an instructor with our CTC skills program. He worked a lot with the skills portion of the program, teaching students. Mark Dyshaw is a veteran deputy with Dodge County, and he had Loring as a training officer. Uh, Loring was the type of guy that everybody looked up to. He'd be the type of guy that would call you out when you're wrong, and you'd learn from it. And that's all it takes. The respect that he earned was immeasurable. 
I was hired in 2004 to go one of my FTOs. And first day on the job, we had uh, my first day. A bunch of pigs fell out of an uh, old green truck on uh, South of Dot Center. And that was my first call. Some pigs were dead, some were alive. And so then 10 minutes later, we're in Dodge Center uh, with a girl out of control that we had to carry out. We lost it with her mom and carried her out of the house. And so that was the exciting first day. And I rode along for a couple of weeks. And it was great. He's the type of guy that everybody looked up to and wanted to be like. And he was perfect for this community. One of the hardest working guys that, that uh, I've ever had the pleasure of working with. Loring was one of our first taser instructors. Now, in order to carry a taser, we all had to be tased so we knew what it felt like and so we could testify to that point in court. Loring, especially with his sense of humor, enjoyed this, especially with volunteers, as you can hear in this audio from one of our training videos. Mike absolutely hates electricity yeah. too, so. No is there guarantee that. Guarantee you will not get hit. Well, here, the best way to do is <laughs> you hold on to this clip, so that works. <laughs> <laughs> you gonna hold him on one side and you hold him on the other? Oh, you're going this way? Hang yeah. on, I gotta, I gotta move him. Yeah, we, you can back up this way and yeah, you back do? up this way a little bit. I'm taking it from this side. Oh, God, every time you hook it there, they wet themselves. <laughs> no, that's right here. <laughs> yeah, you pick that up. I didn't bring a change of clothes today. I was thinking about it. The wedding is in the middle. You can of hear Mike Leanhart there with Loring. Now, Mike had been there for a few years before Loring and quickly recognized what a great guy Loring was. One of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. He's very genuine. You know, as far as being friends with him, you know, if you needed something, he was always one of the first to say, hey, if you need help with this, let me know. I'll, you know, he'll be there. And he would, you know. You know, if you talked about needing something, well, I got this, you can borrow it. You know, I'll, I'll bring it to your house type of stuff. I mean, that's the way he was, you know. Uh, and then help you do stuff, <laughs> you know. Uh, like to goof around, have fun. You know, many of our fishing trips and hunting trips and you know we'd stay overnight and stuff and uh, we had a really good time um we had a blast you know captain jeff brumfield and sergeant mike carlin were two young deputies who all started around the same time as loring and the word that these guys always use to describe loring is he was kind of a goofball a goofball <laughs> so i started in dispatch in 94 and he was just on his own on the road so he started just a couple months before i did him and I and Carlin, like Carlin being all the same age and kind of all started around the same time, you know, just three three of us kind of hit it off. He was so outgoing. He was so easy to talk to and he was engaging. He was a joker. He was a goof. You know, I mean, it was somebody that you would just, you can meet him, you know, on a Friday and you were friends by Saturday. Captain Jeff Espinosa and Chief Deputy Ryer Anderson were some of the new hires back then that were trained by Loring. He was a great guy. I mean, just would do anything for you. He could be a little goofy. He made work fun. And so it was fun coming to work. It was fun spending time with him. He was my field training officer and he's just like level-headed. You wouldn't get upset if I made a mistake. He's like, you know what? You're going to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And you have questions. There's not a dumb question that you can ask. He was the, the best leader there because he wasn't micromanaging. He wasn't one that would get upset. Actually, I don't even recall him ever getting upset with anything. It was just everybody loved being around him. 
we were always joking around, always having fun. Obviously, he, he knew when to take things serious, but in between having to be serious, we were always joking around and having a good time, which made working that much more fun. I think the best way to describe him was Loring was always the life of the party. My wife and I lived in the country just south of Casson. We had a little hobby farm. And Loring was a big kid. You never knew what the hell he was going to do or what the hell he was going to show up with. There was his spud gun, a, a potato launcher or whatever you want to call him. His, his twist, though, was that he also brought glow sticks that he stuck in the potatoes so that when they were shot in the air, we tried to catch them as they were landing in the cornfield. Mind you, there was some alcohol involved here. So there were some intoxicated deputies. Now, I'll note that their wives were there too, and their wives were there to drive them home. But these deputies <laughs> were running around in the cornfield trying to catch these glowing potatoes as they're falling back down to earth. It was, it was, it was hilarious. On another night, he showed up with these big... Chinese sky lanterns. I guess I, I don't really know what you call them. I've never seen them before. And all I could think of was, we're going to burn down my neighbor's cornfield. We we lit these lanterns and they, they became huge, round, glowing globes that we let drift off into the air, off to the east towards Rochester. Never saw them again. Didn't get any reports of fires either, fortunately. Then there was the night that he thought we should play beer darts. Now, I would I would call this an archaic and sometimes dangerous drink. No, not sometimes. This is a dangerous drinking game where you'd sit down on lawn chairs several feet apart in the lawn with a, a beer down at your feet. Now, your opponent is to throw a dart at your beer. Now, mind you, these are real darts, real metal darts. And if you hit the can then that person had to drink down to the dart hole. Of course, my first time playing this game, the dart hit the bottom of my can, so I ended up having to drink the whole thing. Fortunately, it didn't hit my foot or any other uh, important parts. My first time going to a comedy club was with Loring. He'd organized an outing with several of the guys and our spouses in our office, and God, we just, we just laughed and we had fun or ice fishing. He thought it was funny to steal the older deputies' porta potty from their portable shack and put it on the roof of their trailer. Oh, and he also shoveled a big pile of snow in front of their door, so in the middle of the night, when their prostates were calling and they had to pee, they, they were all struggling to get out the door. One night, we were out at our bonfire at our house in the country, and our neighbors came over to check on us. They'd heard a chainsaw cutting wood after midnight and a bunch of laughter and a bunch of noise, and and they saw the big bonfire and they were sure my teenage kids were having a beer party. Now, I would argue that my teenage kids at this time were probably more mature than I was or some of my friends or many of my friends were, but to my neighbor's surprise, it was a bunch of cops with sober wives ready to take them home, but yet again, it was, it was cops having this party. Loring was also known to be a little bit clumsy on his feet at times. If someone was going to trip up and fall over a call or at a search warrant, it was going to be Loring, and we joked about it all the time. Mike Carlin shared with me a, a funny hunting story that really illustrated this. We were hunting north of Manorville in uh, kind of a set-aside, but it also was kind of a wet wetland-type area with pheasant honey. Yep. And like I said, it would get a little bit wet here and there. And it was just a, kind of a bigger waterway with trees and hard to navigate. And we're getting to the end of this. 
uh, waterway. And Loring is between myself and like Mike Leonard and I think Luke okay. Nash. Yep. And Loring, I can kind of see him as he were walking and then he disappears. And I'm like, and all of a sudden he's like, help, <laughs> hey, help. And I'm like, what? I'm like, you fell, you fell again? He's like, I need help. And I'm like, get up. And he's like, I'm, I'm in trouble. And something to that effect. And I, I go over and I get within where I can see him. And all I see is he's, he's down where all I can see is his half of his chest and his shoulders and head. One leg is kicked out behind him and the other leg is gone into this swamp hole. <laughs> Oh, no. And his shotgun is holding him up. Oh, no. And I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, <laughs> I don't know. I fell in this hole. <laughs> and I'm like, well, here. I'm like, give me your hand and I'll take your gun. And it was like, I don't know who helped him get out of there. It was me and somebody else. And he sunk all the way down into this, I don't know, what it would be a drainage hole, possibly, uh, right, yeah. or the tiling or something. Yeah. <laughs> and we pull him out of there, and he is soaked up to his chest, and it was about 30 degrees out, so oh, it's no. not warm. Right. And he stunk to high heaven. <laughs> and so, like, well, I guess hunting's done for the day. <laughs> and we take him back to his house, or I take him back to his house, I think, and, I, and we walk in, and, you know, Deb, bless her heart, you know, she's like, what in the hell happened? <laughs> And we try and explain it. And uh, as we're talking, they had their cats at the house. And one of the cats was like sniffing around his legs, which were in that swamp hole. (laughs) And the cat backs up to him and starts like scratching his feet. What? Like like trying to bury him. (laughs) Like it sunk so bad. Everyone who has served in a sheriff's office knows that election years can be tough. Now, deputies may be pressured to pick sides or to not pick sides and are regularly asked by the public who they should vote for. Honestly, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you don't support one of the candidates, whoever wins may question your loyalty. If you support one and the other wins, then they'll certainly question your loyalty and often can make your job miserable in retaliation. Now, we had a stretch where there were a lot of problems within the office. Our agency was dealing with scandals and other issues with administration and leadership issues, both at work and in their personal lives. There were some indiscretions that were happening that were both work-related and in their private lives that was spilling over into work. And so I think he felt frustrated because he wanted to help them as a friend. He wanted to be a good boss. He wanted what was good for the department, but at the same time, he was starting to feel his department break down. And he was starting to worry about, were his fellow officers going to have each other's backs if it came down to a situation? And to be honest with you, he had lost that confidence that that was going to be the case. And so now he felt like, I have to be the one to do something or say something. I've got to fix this. These issues, these ethical issues, they really bothered Loring. 
Issues that created a lot of problems, a lot of stress for him, not only from a, a disciplinary standpoint, an HR standpoint, but because he was truly disappointed in some of his leadership and their choices, their life choices, life choices that really had affected the reputation of the sheriff's office and our staff. And Loring felt the solution for the problem, the only way to recover from this and heal the department was with new leadership. The solution for this problem is to get somebody else to run against that, that particular individual, at least for one term, because the other officers, I think that would have been in line to go into that sheriff's position or run for sheriff, were pretty young. And in the sheriff's department, you know, once you've moved out of a deputy's position or, or a ranking position into the sheriff's position, there is no guarantee. You, you've got to be ready to end your career with that department the next election period. And Loring was not at that. He was young. I mean, he was he was 42 years old and uh, he had been questioned by a lot of the officers, you know, hey, Gunner, are you going to run for sheriff? And he just was really struggling with that. And he said, you know, maybe we can find an alternative for a few years. And that's kind of how um, Jim Jensen came into the picture kind of with the understanding that he was close to his retirement age and he, you know, was he would run for sheriff against this other individual, serve one term and then move on to retirement. And then uh, some of the other officers on the department, we would have a little more age under their belt and feel more confident uh, running for that position. The senior deputy in our office at the time was Jim Jensen. He'd been there since 1979 and was the last of that age group still working. Jim was the only one willing to take the risk and to run against the incumbent appointed sheriff. And Jim had served in patrol for three decades and he had been the county's first school resource officer. So he'd been in the community for a long time. The 2010 election became all about change. As an agency, our deputies wanted to put the scandals and the other issues behind us and try and build back the community's trust. The agency was really quite young at the time. Even the chief deputy, number two in command, was still in his 40s. And most people considering running for sheriff do this later in their career. In Minnesota, cops can retire without penalty at 55. And the reality is people run for sheriff for different reasons. Now. Some are good leaders and want to lead and make a difference. Some are looking to increase their retirement with a higher wage for their last years in service. Some may want both, and, and yet others feel that because they've put the time in, they should be entitled to the position. For them, it's honestly all about status. The stress in the office that year was really, really intense. Sides were taken, loyalty was questioned, everyone was stressed, and in the end, Jim was elected the 25th sheriff in Dodge County with over 66% of the vote. Sheriff Jensen retained Mike Leinhart as the chief deputy and he promoted Loring to captain, number three in command. A promotion that Loring had worked really hard for and everyone thought he was really the right choice to help heal and promote change within the department. Loring was a strong, kind, thoughtful, and humble leader. While he was very proud of the long list of accomplishments our department had made during his tenure, he was always quick to recognize the efforts of everyone else's involvement with little or no emphasis on his own. He was a true leader by every example in every way and was respected by all who had contact with him. 
He was the perfect choice to serve as captain in this administration, and we all felt he'd be the next sheriff. The trust in law enforcement with your co-worker is way different than the trust, you know, you'd have if you were at an office. Because you're going on calls, you got each other's back, and you repeat. And after time and time again of just, you know, knowing I can trust this person, he's got my back, then that rapport is built, which, you know, leads to respect and so when, you know, like he ascended to any leadership role, when he became firearms instructor and then, you know, a sergeant, that respect was already built in. You know, that trust was already built in. And so when he would have ascended to a, a role as a leader in the department, he earned the trust, you know, of everybody that was working with him, even if you were a peer at one point. You already had that trust built in, that respect built in, and it just came naturally. So you trusted his leadership. At first, things were going pretty well in the office with the new administration. Staff was getting along, trust in administration was growing, and the public seemed really receptive and supportive. Things were looking up in Dodge County. However, as the sheriff became more comfortable in his position, the micromanaging started and trust levels started to decline. Loring was concerned how things were quickly changing in the office. I think at first he would come home and he would be frustrated with something or somebody and he'd voice his his frustration because he couldn't understand what was going on. Where was all this angst coming from with his officers and and with the higher up? It was just all of a sudden things started changing and it made him sad. The sheriff slowly lost trust in most of his staff, including his administration staff. Not because they were untrustworthy, but because they often disagreed with his decisions and ideas. Now, staff would offer suggestions on how to improve things or how to do things better, and he would often take offense to that. He felt that he was losing support and he was losing loyalty and that his inner circle started getting smaller and smaller. And at this point, Loring could see the ship was starting to veer off course, and he started trying to do everything he could to steer the ship back in the right direction. The micromanaging spiraled into a, uh, a strong discipline-based management style where you only heard from administration when you did something wrong or you disagreed with him. Those that did had a target on their backs and, and the sheriff worked to develop a paper trail to support termination, or that's how it appeared. The sheriff would also treat those that supported him and agreed with his ideas much, much differently than the rest of them. This management style was pretty common years ago, especially in an office where the leader was an elected official. It's the type of management style that Sheriff Jensen's previous supervisors used back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And in a small agency with just a few deputies, that may have worked just fine. That's the style of management that the sheriff worked most of his career under. However, when you have a staff of over 50 full and part-time employees, this style of management creates an incredible amount of stress and distrust in a law enforcement office. So at that time in our office, um, when Loring was still around, we found ourselves working in a very toxic workplace atmosphere. The sheriff then managed the office under such an extreme form of micromanagement. He was always coming down on people for such insignificant things. You'd start to wonder at times if there was any end to the madness. So Loring was the filter at the office who provided some stability and some calming mood when things were getting a little crazy, which actually happened quite often. Loring was the filter. He was the fixer. He was always trying to fix the problems between the sheriff and the staff. You know, if something needed fixing, he was the peacemaker. 
He was type A personality, but could bring calmness to anything. With all the stress that Loring was trying to take on by himself, Deb noticed he started to withdraw. He would come home for lunch a lot more instead of going out with fellow officers. Um, You know, he was normally really sociable, and he just kind of started spending more time on stuff around the house, which was okay by me because there's plenty of stuff to get done. We lived on a rural acreage, so there was always stuff to be done, but it seemed like he was doing it as a distraction. You know, and we were always very active. We were always, we liked to go places and see things. You know, we didn't have kids, so we were people that we wanted to go see things and experience things. But it seemed to me like he was getting more and more eager to get out of town, especially on the weekends, uh, rather than getting together um, with coworkers and stuff. So Loring was my go-to guy. Whenever you need someone to bounce an idea off of or share an experience with or just simply vent about some issue or problem, he was that guy. He's just an all-around great coworker and friend. Loring soon became everyone's go-to guy, the one everyone called, texted. They stopped by his house to talk by their stresses, their concerns, their problems. Essentially, he was the liaison between administration and deputies and between administration and human relations. I think Loring felt a personal duty to make sure that everyone else enjoyed doing their jobs at the office and were safe at the workplace and had someone to go to if they had questions or concerns. Loring was the type that even before, I guess, things got bad with administration, yeah, he was already the go-to guy then would always be willing to help anyone out and didn't say no very often. And when stuff got bad on the administrative side of things, he, like I said before, you know, he kind of shielded, shielded everyone from that bad thing the best he could. And yeah, it just was more stress on him. And as that adds up and really he had no one else to go above him to, you know, try to deal with that stress above him. He kind of took it all the best he could. More and more frequently, officers on and off duty were stopping by our home And I think that was because they felt safer and sort of away from prying eyes at the office. And so I think uh, Loring started to feel like if if I'm here, I'm going to be subjected to it. And I also would he would be subjecting me to it, you know, and he didn't have a problem with it, except it started getting to the point where I think he felt like, you guys, I I can't fix the world for you, you know? <laughs> because if he could have, he would have. Loring believed it was his responsibility, it was his duty to make sure he tried to protect his staff from unjust treatment by administration, by the sheriff. But he also felt he needed to protect Deb from the stress too. Loring took this responsibility to heart. He considered the sheriff's office staff his family and he would do whatever it took to take care of them. Leadership above him and I was lacking is one way I would put it. There was none. There was no foresight for the office when we would have come together with ideas and plans of we should do this or we should look at this and that. There was never discussions. We weren't allowed to have discussions about that um, with him. Um, And that stressed Loring a lot. Stressed me a lot. Um, But he really took things to heart. Um, And I remember having many conversations with Loring with just him and I. I'd say, you know, some of this stuff about Loring, you just got to let it slide off your shoulders. He he wasn't able to do that. And he wanted to make things right for everybody, right? If if 
some he felt somebody was wronged. He thought, well, how should we take care of this or do this? And part of me says, you know, some of the stuff you just got to let play out because, you know, if it's a union issue or whatever, uh, it's going to go nowhere. Um, but, but we're going to have to let it take its course. Um, and that's the way most of it went. It, it went nowhere after it took its course. But, it, you know, he couldn't let that go um, day after day. Um, you know, and honestly, the stress started before that because the previous administration started the stress. <laughs> that's our part for me is the how, how do you how do you really relay what the stress was because we all felt it um, immensely. We felt it and it felt really heavy on everyone's shoulder. But you know, he and I were in a position at that time that you know you kind of just tried to make rest assured everybody that things will be all right, but really not knowing if they were or not, you know, you know, try to say, yeah, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. But you really didn't know where things were going to go. Now we had a number of deputies who appeared to be targeted as insubordinate, some in patrol, some in other areas. I worked in investigations and while I was, I don't think I was ever really insubordinate. I never, I never was a yes person. I would, I would challenge ideas that I felt were wrong respectfully, of course, but I would challenge them. I learned this from Loring because that's how he was. Once I got on the proverbial list, I started getting in trouble from minor things. I'll just give you a few examples. One day, Loring walked in and he told me he'd saved me from three days off without pay. I asked him, what the hell are you talking about? See, back then we hand wrote our timesheets and the two sheets for the two week pay period were supposed to be uh, paper clipped or stapled when turned into finance. Honestly, I can't remember which one it was. The, but the sheriff actually wrote a policy dictating this because people weren't doing it right. Full disclosure, again, I don't remember if it was supposed to be paper clipped or, or stapled, but apparently that pay period, I did it wrong, and I gave the sheriff the opportunity to go after me and discipline me. Loring, however, talked him out of it, and then I, I never heard from the sheriff about it. The next time I got in trouble was because of my duty log again. They were handwritten and we were keeping record at the bottom uh, of the, the sheet with our accrued PTO time. Well, apparently I shorted myself on this particular duty log. I didn't write in more than I had coming. I wrote in less than I had coming. And I was told by Loring that he talked to the sheriff out of writing me up for this, suggesting that I had filed a false document. I was on the list, and uh, it appeared like the sheriff was trying to create enough of a paper trail to get HR support to walk me out the door. This was going on with several in our office, deputies, record staff, and, and the sheriff wanted to surround himself with yes people. And, and again, this may have worked in the 70s and 80s when the agency was much smaller, but it just created chaos and trust issues with our staff in the mid-2000s. Loring was one of my best friends at work. His wife, Deb, worked with my wife, Rosie, and uh, we really loved hanging out. He was, he was just a goofball. He was just a big kid. He never, never really grew up, frankly, always joking around, full of practical jokes, always a prankster. But when it came to dealing with the public or staff on serious issues, he was articulate and compassionate. He was, he was really a great leader. Loring recognized back then that the agency was in trouble. The undue stress created by this management style was really creating a terrible, toxic work environment. Everyone was on edge, and any staff that appeared to align with the sheriff weren't trusted by the rest of the staff. And some did, just for self-preservation, frankly. And everyone started to question everyone's integrity and loyalty. Many in our patrol staff became 
honestly so afraid of getting into trouble by the sheriff that they really stopped being proactive. They just responded to calls as they came in. Many of these guys were young men with families and kids, and they couldn't afford to risk getting fired because jobs back then, law enforcement jobs were really scarce. At one point, the sheriff became so untrusting of our patrol staff and our sergeants that every arrest needed to be approved by him 24-7. Nobody could be taken to jail without his approval. Things became stressful enough at the office that a handful of our staff was actually put on either anxiety medication or blood pressure medication because of the effect on their health. Now, this line of work is stressful enough already without admin compounding to those stress levels. There's a chain of command. Sergeant, captain, chief deputy, sheriff. The sheriff is an elected official. That really protects you from any kind of disciplinary actions outside of criminal level type stuff. And all of this stuff that was going on wasn't necessarily criminal, it was more of ethical issues. Not to say that there wasn't a time or two where it was, I was walking a fine line, a fine line, so. Loring found himself losing the confidence of the sheriff as well. Now, as he continued to argue in favor of deputies getting targeted, he too became a victim of the micromanaging. At that time, we had around 40 cameras in our office and you could look on the camera and follow us pretty much everywhere. Things escalated to the point where if Loring was off camera for long enough, he would get a text from the sheriff or a phone call from him. The sheriff was watching him on the camera system, watching where Loring went and watching who he talked to. In the beginning, Loring and I would have after work conversations about what was going on. It was an opportunity for Loring to vent because he was under a tremendous amount of pressure trying to keep our agency going. He was trying to protect our staff. He was protecting all the work he had done in the past to improve our office. He was he was one of those guys that internalized his stress unless you initiated the conversation. Now, he needed to talk. He needed to work this stress out. This burden he had taken on was really, really weighing heavily on him. Probably about three to six months uh, before he passed away, um, uh, there was a noticeable change in his personality, his normal chipper demeanor. He became more melancholy and he always seemed like he was in deep thought. And when I'd ask him what was going on, which was almost daily, uh, he would just say, you know, the usual BS or nothing to worry about, or I don't want to talk about it. That is not normal. And I was, I was very alarmed by that. And uh, I did reach out to some of his closest friends, confidants, and they were concerned as well. They had seen that change. And, and when people would ask him, you know, hey, Gunner, are you okay? He would just play it down or make a joke about it, you know. Uh, it's just crap going on. Uh, he pretty much stopped talking about anything that was work-related to me or anyone, as far as I know. He didn't want to burden others with the garbage that was going on. That's just how he was. You know, he was, in, he was internalizing all of this stuff, and... Uh, it was turning to poison. One evening during the summer of 2013 at my home, Loring and Mike Leanhart and I got together and we were talking about the future, that the sheriff's leadership style was, we felt was tearing our agency apart. Election year was coming up next year and we felt someone needed to run against the sheriff. Now, Mike had never had any interest in the position and he affirmed that again in the meeting. Loring was reluctantly interested, but was concerned himself about his age. He was only 43 and he had a long career ahead of him and was concerned that he was too young. 
However, he had the nearly 20 years of service. He had the leadership ability. He had the support of the staff. He had the trust of the staff, the trust of the community. And at the time, we all thought he was the obvious choice. I worked in radio and marketing before law enforcement. Now, that was my wheelhouse. My first thought was we need to go big during the election year in order to beat an incumbent sheriff. Thousands of people traveled that road every day for work, many going from Dodge County to the Mayo Clinic. Now, I felt that if we were going to go big, we needed a billboard on 14. So I contacted the billboard company and I reserved it for the summer of 2014. It was time to start planning for a fight. Soon after our meeting, as things got worse in the office, Loring stopped talking about work. You could see it. Loring was getting tired. He was tired of fighting with the sheriff. He was tired of being micromanaged and being watched every minute of the day. He was tired of trying to help everyone with their problems. He was tired of having to protect all of us. He was tired of trying to fix everything. So I remember having a conversation with Loring one day. It was a few months before he died, where he was questioning just how much more crap he could take from the office and from the sheriff at that time. We talked about being strong, about not giving up, about staying steady the course, because he was hopeful to someday run for sheriff himself. One night while working in my voiceover studio at home, I sat down and I emailed Loring and I, I told him how important it was that he keep talking, that he needs to have someone he talks to about work, about the stress, that internalizing it wasn't healthy. We'll get through this. Next year's election year, I would do everything I could to get him elected. Marketing was my thing. I was, I was just trying to keep him positive. Hindsight being what it is, that, that probably added even more stress. Loring had started working out regularly to get healthy and likely to work out all the stress. He was still working out, but he wasn't talking. He wasn't communicating anymore. Loring was the guy who would tell you day or night, 24-7, if you need someone, call him, text him, stop by his house, stop by the office. He was there for everyone. He always reminded us of that. And he was always encouraging everyone to talk through their issues. Unfortunately, he didn't practice what he preached. It was the first week of September. He loved the outdoors. Loring needed to get away to clear his head. He needed he needed a break. He needed to regenerate, and he got an offer to go fishing in Canada. He had always wanted to go fishing in Canada. And uh, one of the uh, Dodge County Highway Department employees had invited him to go with on this little four-day. It was just like a little four-day trip, go up to Canada, go fishing. And he had learned it, asked me, you know, hey, do you mind if I go, you know? And I said, yeah, go for it. You know, I'm fine. Just go do your thing. Have fun. You know, you've always wanted to do that. And, you know, the whole time he was up there, he would send me a text or he would, you know, send me a picture on those, you know, the old flip phones. <laughs> Just a picture of him sitting in a boat doing something stupid. And uh, he was happy. You know, he was smiling from ear to ear. My wife, Rosie, owned and ran a dog grooming business for many years at this point. And she had two other groomers working with her in her shop that we built on our rural property south of Casson. Loring's wife, Deb, was also working there, and it was a busy shop, and it was a good getaway for Deb, too. After Loring came back from his fishing trip, Deb shared some frightening concerns with Rosie. She explained to Rosie that Loring was almost physically sick that morning, dreading going to work. It was just weighing so heavily on him that he didn't want to go in. He'd had it. 
with everything that was going on. Deb told Rosie in tears that this job was going to kill him. Little did we know, Deb was right. It was September 10th, 2013. September had been warm and dry in southeast Minnesota with lows in the mid-60s, highs in the upper 70s and 80s. It was beautiful. It was the fall. Fall colors were just a couple of weeks away. School was back in session. High school football was going on strong. It was... the, The fall is such a fun time of year in Minnesota. Rosie and I, we were horse people. We had horses for many years while our kids were growing up, and this was... Also something that we had in common with Deb and Loring. They had horses too. We loved trail riding. That was our thing. We were looking for another trail horse that day, and Rosie found one she wanted to go look at. Late that afternoon on the 10th, Rosie and I drove over to a horse property in Byron, just a few miles from our place, and we went and looked at this new horse that Rosie was interested in. While we were looking at this horse and visiting with the owner in their paddock, my cell phone rang. It was the office. It was 6.34 p.m. Back then, I was one of two investigators. Patrol would call us all the time, day and night, with questions for guidance. It was was part of our job. And my phone rang all the time, so to get a call after work wasn't unusual for me. I answered it, and it was Bruce, one of our dispatchers. I could tell right away that something was wrong. Bruce sounded worked up, and he told me that deputies were at Loring's house doing CPR on him. I was like... What? Scott, the guys are there now doing CPR on Loring. Now, back then in our office, uh, well, today too, we do, we did, we do a lot of pranks on co-workers. Cops, cops have a weird sense of humor. And often to the public, if they were listening, we were, we're pretty inappropriate. It's a, it's a coping mechanism for all the, all the shit we see, frankly. We also like to prank the dispatchers too, and the dispatchers would prank us right back. But Bruce sounded stressed. He sounded serious with this call. I was shocked. I was in disbelief. And honestly, my answer was, I told Bruce, you better not be fucking with me, Bruce. That was my answer. He assured me he wasn't. And he explained Mayo One had been paged. Mayo One is the Mayo Clinic's trauma helicopter that flies from their emergency room to scenes where patients are in need of immediate high-level critical care and rapid transportation. It's essentially a flying ER room and is available, weather permitting, 24-7 for call-out. They fly within 150 miles of Rochester and perform nearly 2,000 flights a year. I was in shock. Loring was 43 years old. He was a year younger than me and, frankly, He was in much better shape than me. How, how in the hell could this be happening? I didn't know what to do. I hung up the phone. I told Rosie, my wife, I gotta go. I turned around, ran to my pickup and I left. I left Rosie there. I left my wife there at that farm wondering what, what the hell's going on? I just, uh, I just shut down. I didn't, I didn't know. All I could think of was I had to get there. When law enforcement gives someone bad news about a family member that they were transported to the hospital or they're being worked on, we never let that person drive. We always make sure we arrange a ride for them because of the stress. Now, I was in our personal pickup, a Ford F-150, and I, I, I barely remember the drive to Loring's place. I do remember 
when I got in it and took off, I remember I don't have lights, I don't have sirens, um, but I just needed to get to Loring's. Loring and Deb's hobby farm was about eight miles from where I was at. They they lived on a 20-acre hobby farm with, they had horses, they had chickens, dogs, cats. When I got there, I saw several squads and personal vehicles. The ambulance was there. I heard, I heard Deb screaming. I'll, I'll never forget that. She was crying and screaming and being consoled by several of the guys on the deck outside the kitchen door to the farmhouse. I asked them, where's Loring? Where, where is he? And they told me the guys were working on him on the kitchen floor. He came home from work. It was, I'm guessing, you know, around 4.30. And as usually, he walked in the door, and I, I greeted him, you know, my usual somewhat sarcastic, how was your day, honey? You know, just because I kind of knew it sucked. <laughs> you know? And he looked at me, and he shook his head, and he said the usual number one bullshit. Uh, do you mind if I go out, work out for a while before supper? Uh, he was visibly upset about something, but I didn't, I didn't want to push it at that time. You know, I said, yeah, sure, go out. And uh, so I started making dinner. At that point, it was about 5.30, I think, when he went out there. It was about 20 minutes later. He came back in the house, and uh, he was complaining that he felt too warm, and he was winded, and he looked gaunt. I mean, and I asked him, well, are you okay? And he says, yeah. He says, I'm just some reason that workout's just kicking my butt today. I'm just really warm. So he laid down on the tile floor in the kitchen where it was cool. And he just laid there for a minute and he said, you know, I'm going to jump in the shower and cool off a bit. I said, okay. At that point, he, he had gotten some of his color back and, and I had walked into the living room and he had jumped in the shower and he was maybe in there for a couple minutes and I heard a shampoo bottle fall. And... You know, I didn't really think much of it, but I just said, hey, you know, are you okay in there? (laughs) And there was no answer. And so I got up and I quickly walked towards the bathroom. And because it was just, you know, Loring and I, we didn't have kids, he just leave the door open when you shower. And I saw him laying face down in the tub. And the shower was running and he was unconscious and I shook him. I thought maybe he had just passed out. But there wasn't any response. You know, I turned off the shower and kind of lifted him into an upright sitting position in the tub so I could check for a pulse and breathing. I had some minimal first responder um, training. And uh, there was a slight gurgle from his mouth, but I couldn't feel a pulse. Needless to say, I freaked out, and I called 911, and they know who I am, obviously, and I said, you got, you have to get somebody here. Now, um, Loring passed out in the shower. I, He's not breathing. I can't lift him out because he's soaking wet and our size difference, and I wasn't sure if... I didn't want to move him too much at that point because I didn't know what other injuries. Um, So I wasn't really able to do chest compressions on him, but I was doing breathing for him and was probably within five minutes an officer um, arrived. Deputy Mark Dyshaw and Sergeant Jeff Espinosa were in Dodge Center on a call when dispatch paged out Loring's medical. 
I was in Dodge Center assisting Deputy Daisha with a juvenile complaint. I had overheard a call on the radio of a medical, but I didn't catch the address. So you're dealing with the juvenile who didn't want to go home, uh, but mom was there. And then all of a sudden, my phone started ringing, and I saw a dispatch. I got on the phone and said, this is Jeff, and the dispatch was, did you catch that medical? I was like, I heard the medical, but I didn't know the address. And dispatch said, that's Loring's house. And I just like, what? It's like, yeah, the medical of uh, the male that was down is at Loring's house. I said, okay, um, you can put me clear from this call. Um, I hung up, I told Mark, we gotta go. There's a medical at Loring's house. So him and I raced down County Road 34, went over 14 and got to Loring's house um, at the same time. The phones came out for a medical with an unresponsive mail. I got the address and I didn't put two and two together until less than those I got a phone call from dispatch saying it was Lauren's son with unresponsive mail. So the juvenile's mother was there. We got to go. And so Espinosa and I took off and uh, we drove, I think, about five miles from where we were at. So then Espinosa got a call from dispatch that it was boring. Well, on the way there, I knew Loring, well, he passed out, maybe he just wasn't feeling well, just passed out, he'll come to, and it'll all be fine, you know. I saw him this morning, he's fine. How bad could it be? He's in perfect health. Pull in the driveway and don't see anybody around. I run out to the other side of my squad to get my med bag, and I run inside ahead of Mark, and I hear Deb yelling in here, and I hear, like, the showers running as well. As you enter Loring's house, the bathroom is right off to the left. And I drop my med bag and I run in. I see Deb holding Loring up and then telling me that he was not feeling well. He thought he was getting overheated, so he was going to take a cool shower. After a minute or so, she heard a thump in the shower and she went in and she found him like that and called 911. We lifted him, uh, Loring, out of the tub and put him on the floor in the kitchen there so that uh, Jeff could start the EMS protocol. We knew an ambulance was already on its way, and a couple more officers arrived, um, and then the ambulance arrived, and they had been doing CPR on him this whole time, and they kept doing it. You know, they were just determined that this wasn't really happening. I run in the back door, and uh, him and uh, Deb are pulling him out of the bathroom, which is attached to the kitchen, and uh, on the on the floor of the kitchen, uh, he was unresponsive, no pulse. Insert an airway, uh, start CPR, hook up the AED. And the funny thing is, is afterwards, my training kicked in, and you kind of shut everything out. You know, I'm here to, to, to bring this life back and to do my best to make this happen, come alive, and, and what we've been trained to do and what I've done many times before. Um, it just, it just kind of, your training kicks in, and you're just thinking, come back, come back. I picked Loring up on, like, the right side. Deb had left, and we took him out of the tub, out of the shower, and laid him down on uh, in the kitchen. We started CPR, because um, he looked like a ashen gray color, and dried him off the best we could to put the AED on, and then we started CPR. Mark put a airway in, and um, we just 
started with CPR until the ambulance got there. Um, as soon as an ambulance member came, uh, Mark was doing CPR and they were going to take over. So I walked walked out with Deb. She was still in the kitchen watching this all happen. And she just like crumbled at my arms. Um, just like um, she was upset, obviously, but we were out on the deck and listening to all the commotion going on in the house. But I knew she needed to be pulled away from that. Deb's call came in at 6.17 p.m. Deb told dispatch that she was doing CPR. At 6.23, the ambulance arrived on scene. At 6.32, they advised shock delivered. Second shock delivered at 6.34. Shock delivered at 6.36. Shock delivered at 6.39. When the defibrillator delivers a shock, it means the machine is detecting a shockable heart rhythm. Not that it's working properly, but that it's responding. The survival rate for patients with shockable rhythms who are shocked can be as high as 74%. When we have patients like Loring, who is administered CPR right away and has a shockable rhythm, it gives all the first responders hope that, that they can save the patient. Mayo 1 landed about 6.39 p.m., about the same time I arrived. Then I heard Mayo 1. They had dispatched Mayo 1, and it was... Mayo 1 landed right out in the, the road by my house. And they came in, and it was within a couple minutes that, you know, they were trying. And uh, they had called uh, uh, St. Mary's, I'm, I'm guessing, and uh, basically they said... To cease efforts because it was he was gone. The Mayo One staff was great. Uh, said uh, we're doing all we can, and they knew that he was one of ours. And uh, they said we're doing all we can. And, and are you comfortable with it? Are you comfortable? We're going to call it. Are you comfortable with that? And I said, Yeah, I am. At six fifty-seven p.m. After working on Loring for over a half hour, they pronounced Loring dead and asked us to call the coroner. My head was spinning at this time. I, trying to help console Deb on the deck. We were just outside the door to the kitchen. I could, I could hear them working on Loring on the other side of the door before they told us Loring was gone. I, I, everything was a fog. I just, I couldn't believe this was real. Investigator Jeff Brumfield's wife, Kathy, pulled up and Rosie got out of her car with her. I think about it now and I think, God, what a, what a shitty thing to do. I, I take this call um, about Loring. And I, probably the only thing she heard was me telling Bruce, you better not be fucking with me. And then I run to the truck and I leave. I leave her there at this person's place where we're looking at this horse. I just, I didn't know what to do. I, I just went blank. All I could think of was I needed to help. I needed to, I needed to get to Loring. And, um, yeah, I, I feel terrible about that. I thank God that Kathy went and, uh, picked up Rosie and brought her there because I needed her there. I, um, she's my rock. And uh, we've been best friends forever, and uh, I, I needed her. I didn't show it very well, but 
I, I needed her there. Dispatch was calling and advising all of our off-duty deputies of what happened. This was something we didn't need them to hear from anyone else. Normally, we'd want to do this in person. Normally, we would want to be there with them when we told them, but we didn't want them to hear it on the news. We didn't want them to hear it on social media, or we didn't want the, the rumor mill to, to start up before, before they knew what happened, before they knew that Loring was gone. And soon after that, several deputies and several staff members and spouses started showing up at Loring's house. He'd always stop in my office at the end of the day. Yeah, he did. And he stood against that back window. And but he was telling me he was going to go home and work out, right? And just like any other day, you're like, all right, well, we'll see you tomorrow. And never saw him tomorrow. Came home and, I don't know, it was within an hour or two or whatever. Get the phone call and all I remember is they said, Mail one or the ambulance is up responding to Loring's place. They're doing CPR. And um, I just I, I just fell kind of over on my counter and just said, oh, can't be true, it can't be right. And um, doing CPR, and I know in my head that, you know, this is not a good thing. And I just remember thinking to myself, which way do I go? Which way do I go? Do I go to respond to his house or do I respond to the hospital? Both are different directions. <laughs> and I and I stood there and I'm like, where do I go? Because my wife was working at the time and she was at the ER. And uh, so I just finally jumped in the car and headed out to his place. And uh, yeah, and that's uh, when I saw him when I got there. I was working out in, in Casson, actually, and I got called by dispatch, Bruce Brundle. Um, I was running on a treadmill, and after I'm done with work, um, when I'm working out especially, if I see on my phone, like, if the, the dispatch calls, it just says sheriff. And, you know, one of the guys, obviously, if their name pops up, it's hard to, like, run and talk. So sheriff popped up on my phone. And I'm looking at my phone, and I'm like, what the heck? And so I just actually hopped onto the sides of the treadmill while it was still running, you know, and uh, grabbed my phone and answered my phone and said, what's up? And Bruce tells me, he's like, hey, they're out at Loring's house right now. Mayo One's on the ground. They're doing CPR. And I'm just like, I didn't say anything. And the first words out of my mouth was, fuck off. And Bruce is like, no, I'm serious. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, why? How? You know, and Bruce just said, I don't know. He went unresponsive and they're doing CPR and they got the helicopter on the ground. And I'm like, okay. I said, I'm gone. And I jumped off a treadmill and um, I got the entire attention, I think, of the people in the gym when I told Bruce to F off, not knowing that I was talking that loud. But I went out the door, I got in my car and I flew over to Loring and Deb um, and saw the helicopter and it was just pandemonium. So many people were there, you know, fire, EMS, law enforcement. I mean, there was cars everywhere, people everywhere. Um, I don't remember a response to a house or a medical ever that had that number of people. Within 30 minutes of that call going out, I had over two dozen on and off duty officers, firefighters, ambulance crew members, and spouses of the agencies. They were all there in my yard, and they were all devastated. Um, and I was, I was 
devastated and I was I was furious because I knew the last thing one of the last things that he said to me told me exactly how his day had gone. While we never knew what happened that day at work behind closed doors, Loring's statement to Deb left her the impression that something happened that day with the sheriff. Mail One had landed and was at the end of their driveway on the gravel on County Road 10. The sheriff was on the road protecting the LZ or the landing zone. When, when Mail's called out, someone is always assigned to the LZ, the landing zone, to make sure the helicopter and crew are safe from other people, from traffic on the road, etc. Deb started screaming that she wanted the sheriff off her property, that he was not allowed on her property. She did not want to see him. He was not to step foot on her property, not to step foot on her deck. He wasn't to be anywhere near her. Chief Deputy Leanhart and I were on the deck uh, with her and several others, and we asked Sergeant Espinosa, who was one of our newest sergeants, to go down the driveway and tell the sheriff that he needed to leave. I was thinking, how am I going to do this? Because I'm just a sergeant. He's the sheriff. And I don't know how he's going to act after I say this. So I'm a little worried because I don't, you know, I like my job. It did put me in a spot, but it needed to be done for Deb because that was, wouldn't have been good had she had he gotten remotely close. So I, Lauren's driveway is, you know, a longer driveway and I started walking down the driveway. The sheriff started walking up after it was called and I said, you can't go up there. And he's like, well, why? I said, right now, Deb does not want to see you. So it's probably best if you don't go up to the deck. And I just remember him looking at me and then he's like, well, I guess you have seen them and walked off. The deputies who had responded first and worked on Loring were now all outside the house. I will never forget the vision of seeing Deputy Mark Dyshaw. He was in his uniform pants. His vest was off. His uniform shirt was off. He was in a white t-shirt, uniform pants, sitting on a bench by Loring's and Deb's fire pit, elbow on his knees, just looking down, looking completely defeated. I then went inside the house. I went into the kitchen. I went and talked to the crew, and I don't know why I went in there. I guess I, I guess I needed to see Loring, but I'll never forget that image. Loring on the floor with the trape tube in his mouth. I was. Uh, I was in shock. Everyone there was in shock. We were all friends. We'd all worked dozens of scenes like this. The endotracheal tube is a breathing tube used by first responders. You insert it into the mouth and it helps keep the airway open to attach a ventilator to pump air into the lungs. Essentially, it allows us to breathe. It allows us to breathe for the patient. And I remember telling the ambulance crew... I asked them to take out the tube before Deb came in. I did not want to see 
her see him like that. They reminded me that they couldn't do anything until the medical examiner arrived. I knew that. I think about it now. I, I knew that that's protocol, that that's what you had to do. I just, at that point, I just wanted to protect Deb from seeing that. At this time, there were a a number of deputy wives who had arrived, and everyone was there to console Deb. It was was heartbreaking and, and beautiful to see how how close this staff that we had were, how, how much everybody really cared. I walked off the deck into the backyard. Again, my head was spinning. Sheriff Torgerson was the neighboring sheriff in Olmstead County. He's a friend, and uh, he'd been involved with the Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Association forever. And... At this point, I had no idea what to do. I didn't know, I didn't know where to go. I didn't, what's, what's next? What steps do we take? We'd never lost anyone like this at work. I, I called Kevin. I called Sheriff Torgerson. I told him we were at Loring's and that Loring had just died. I said, we're all still here. I, I don't know what to do. We need help. I remember Kevin, I think specifically because he's still in he's still in my friend circle, you know. But uh, they were wonderful. They I don't know, I don't think I could have done it without them, to be honest with you. I wouldn't have known where to start. And they had all these resources and helpful things on how to, you know, n- not only get uh, financial help, but to get a pro- the process started of trying to see what benefits might be available to me. And, you know, all things that I never even would have thought of because I was, I was destroyed. Minnesota's Law Enforcement Memorial Association is an amazing organization run by a board of volunteers. Some are law enforcement, some are survivors, others are supporters. They work with survivor families to help with all the planning, organization, and running of law enforcement funerals and also support them for all the years afterwards to, to support them through their, their grief process because their sacrifice never ends. These guys and gals are absolutely amazing people on this board. They helped Deb plan and organize a, uh, an amazing celebration of Loring's life and his service. The biggest challenge for Lima was Deb did not want the sheriff to attend. She believed at that time that Loring was gone because of the sheriff, because of the stress, the because of the working environment, because of the the toxic nature of the office, she she didn't want him there. And the sheriff Torgerson and that team with Lima was so good about delicately explaining to her that this was something that they just couldn't do. They, the sheriff needed to be there when there's a fallen officer. However, they said they would organize the funeral, so. She wouldn't have to see the sheriff, and she agreed to that. I remember the heartache and the tears of not only my family, but of his law enforcement family. And I very distinctly remember that folded flag being handed to me 
and to this day I will never forget that because that made it so much more real and uh, as a survivor you know these things happen in an instant you know whether it's gun violence or a health issue or whatever and you're blindsided by it and immediately you it's like oh my god I'm I'm a widow and I have to plan a funeral and I have to figure all this out and you kind of shut down and you just go through the you just do it Mike Leanhart was asked to present the flag to Deb. Now, Mike was number two in charge, and Deb refused to have the sheriff present the flag to her. The Lima staff said it would be best for Mike to do it. Now, keep keep this in mind. Mike, he's, he's number two in charge. He is the chief deputy. He's an at-will employee to the sheriff. And they were burying the number three in that administration. So now administration was down to two and he was being asked to step in the sheriff's role of of presenting the flag to a fallen officer's wife. Um, that just the, the incredible stress that that had to have put him under. Mike said he was just, he was just numb at this point. I was numb. I was numb through that whole process because I was so upset and just lost one of my best friends. Um, you talk about gut-wrenching. <laughs> and then being asked to present the flag. Um, I remember asking Ferguson, I said, what do I even say? I, I didn't know what to say. I, like I said, you talk about being numb and just going through the motions and just say, point me this direction. I have to walk here. Tell me what to say here. Um, that's way it felt. Because um, I didn't know what to do. Um, you know, I look back at that now, and I'm like, "Are you kidding me? Why? Like, this is your one of your best friends." And but I was just so emotionally drained um, with losing him, but yet having to deal with the office crap at the time. I it had enough of it all. <laughs> you know, and and this is what bothers me, and then bothered me after the fact is that I couldn't think of my own words to even say and now I could say a hundred different things to her I I feel bad about that now but at that time in that moment I couldn't I, I couldn't even mutter out a sentence hardly um, that was just a really sad moment in time that uh, it'll be forever ingrained in my in me it's just in a very emotional time um, seeing everyone there that was close to Lorraine and people that work with him, people that cared for him, his family, his friends, and just how young he was and, and how involved in everybody's lives he was. And then to be there for that purpose and that moment, it was, it was really sad, knowing that that could happen to anybody given the right circumstances or wrong circumstances. And you know, the other stark memory of, of that day, the thing that stands out that's on a more somber moment was when everything was done Deb wanted kind of this time alone and she laid down on the chairs and we formed a line. We formed a wall 
to basically shield her from anybody else that wanted to look into that private moment, you know, and that, that was, that was a somber, you know, a very somber moment, you know, but it, it, I think it displayed not just Deb's, you know, love for Loring, um, but it displayed, I think the respect and admiration and love that our entire department had for Loring, that we weren't going to let, you know, Deb be exposed to anybody that maybe want to take a quick picture of her, you know, in that private moment. And, and that's, you know, I mean, in death, you know, I mean, however it happens, you know, if you have that kind of reverence from everybody else around you, um, then you've done something really special in your life. Jeff Espinosa and Mark Dyshaw were also asked to be pallbearers. Deb asked if I would be you know, a pallbearer. Um, she said Loring would have wanted that. And then, you know, she asked for other people too but she's like Loring loved you guys and I said I would be honored to do that and you know I love Loring as well and I was honored to be uh, a pallbearer and I still have the uh, shell from the 21 gun salute sitting in my top car that's uh, been well handled and well rubbed over the last 10 years We've talked about this. Loring was always kidding around. He was always, always making us laugh. He was, he just made everything fun. And Mike Carlin's task at the funeral was to carry Loring's urn out. Now, Mike explained to me how that went and how he was sure Loring was messing with him from above. So I was given the responsibility to carry Loring, his urn, you know, from the front of the church, the altar, out the door, you know, hang a right, and you go down to where we were having the outdoor kind of final words and ceremony. Yeah. And Torgi was there for Lima. So he hands me these white gloves, and he's explaining everything about how the process is going to be, how we're going to get up, you know, um, and I was tasked with carrying the course flooring. Yeah. And I'm looking at these white gloves, and I'm going, I can't fucking drop them. <laughs> right. If I drop him, this is going to be the worst thing ever. Right. <laughs> and uh, oh. I go to him. I go. I go to Torgi. I'm like, um, these gloves. I, I, am I going to be able to hold them? He's like, oh, yeah, you yeah, you will. It'll be fine. I go, but they feel kind of like flick. He's like, no. Once you grab hold of the ear, it'll be fine. And he's like, so you go get them. You do an about face. You walk out um, the door. You you hang a right, and then you hang another right. There'll be a table to set the urn down and then you fall back, you know, X amount of feet and you come around in military fashion and, you know, stand at attention. Yep. And I'm like, oh, okay. Sounds simple enough. Right. Get to the point where I get a hold of the urn, get a hold of Loring and, you know, I've got him in a death grip, you know, walking out of the church. Yep. And we hang the right and we go down to the corner of the building, we hang a right again and we go and to a point of where we're looking for a table and there's no table. Oh no. And I'm like, what the F? <laughs> and Lauren, uh, Leonard's looking at me like, what do we do? And so eventually we just stop <laughs> and we, you know, face forward. I bet nowhere where I'm supposed to put the urn down and put Loring down. Right. Now I'm just like, I take my steps back like we're supposed to. And now I'm holding them. Yeah. And I know he lost a lot of weight when he uh, was alive and he got in shape when he was alive but as an urn 
he was heavy. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh. I'm like, I can't hold him in this position, like for this entire little ceremony. And I'm looking at Leonard, Leonard's looking at me like, I don't know. And uh, then the pastor comes out and he goes over to this little pedestal where he has paperwork sitting on it. Yeah. And I realize that's the table. That's the table. Yeah. That little pedestal is where I'm supposed to put Loring and the pastor's got all his paperwork on it. Oh, no. He hijacked my table. <laughs> and at one point, I just eased the urn down onto my mag pouches and let him sit on the mag pouch. Yeah. And at some point, the pastor picked up all his paperwork when Leonhardt went to give the flag to Deb. Okay. The pastor and Mike went, I believe the pastor and Mike went up to give Deb her yep. flag. Yep. And when they did that, I did the best military two-step, <laughs> like three paces ahead, two paces to the left. I put the urn on a little pedestal, positioned it correctly, and I stepped back and my arms were on fire. <laughs> and all I could think was, from above, Loring was laughing his ass off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh. It was just, yeah, one of those moments. If you check out our website, you can see several pictures from the funeral and several fun pictures of Loring. Uh, and the, the pictures from the funeral are just super, super moving. It really, really shows how impactful this man was to so many people. The next few months were... They were really a challenge for us at the sheriff's office. Loring was gone. It was now the sheriff, Chief Deputy Mike Leanhart, and us. He was the first friend and close person that I'd ever lost. Um, yeah, I've lost some, you know, not close family members, but distant family members. Um, but this was a guy I worked with every day. I mean, office was right next to each other, and we were both on the road together. And, and you know, by losing him, it's like losing a brother. Honestly, and then I felt really alone um, back at the office because his office was empty, and it was right next to mine. And I still had to go to work every day. And um, act like you were, were holding up your end of the bargain and doing what you're supposed to do every day. And um, it was hard to do. One of the first things we did, we planted a tree. We had a sugar maple that was purchased in Loring's memory, and. With the county staff and many of Loring's friends there too, Michael Leanhart and I planted the tree outside of our sheriff's office on the South Lawn. A few months later, after Loring died, Chief Deputy Mike Leanhart, who had served his entire career with Dodge County for 25 years without one disciplinary action in his file, was fired. The reason given? Lack of loyalty to the sheriff. This was election year, and the sheriff was trying to protect his position and re-election bid, and some thought that he thought Mike was a threat that Mike might be considering running against him. So the sheriff decided to let Mike go. In March of 2014, after great discussion with my family, with my wife Rosie, and after discussing it with Mike Leanhart and others, I announced that I would be running for sheriff. Loring's wife, Deb, handed me Loring's badge. She told me to hold on to it. She said that Loring would be with me throughout the year. After a long and hard-fought campaign on November 4th, 2014, 
I narrowly won election for sheriff, the election that many of us felt should have been won by Loring. That night, in front of uh, a couple hundred people at the Northwoods Lounge in Casson, we reflected, we celebrated, and uh, we, we talked a lot about Loring. Last summer, Loring Gunther, that will be well, a year ago this last summer, Loring Gunther, Mike Leanhart, and I had many discussions about the upcoming election and uh, who should run this year. Both those guys I've got a tremendous amount of respect for. Uh, in September, as most of you know, Loring passed away from a heart attack, and uh, that changed everything. Um, Loring was really somebody that I looked up to. Uh, he was my longtime friend, trainer, mentor. Um, and I've talked about this before. While he didn't grow up here, you'd never know it. Loring spent most of his life, adult life here in Dodge County and really took ownership into this community and our department. And in, in many ways, he reminded me of my dad, just the way he handled us. Um, just, a, just a great guy. You know, he's loved by all. His upbeat personality, he was always firm, yet he was fair with everybody at the sheriff's office. Um, his dedication to the guys, uh, to the patrol, to his, his extended family, and to Deb, uh, like I, I always believed he was going to be the next sheriff, and I felt he deserved it. And my my goal was always to run after him. That, that's what I, that's how I thought it was going to happen. Um, we put this campaign community together, and, and on February third we announced. And uh, during the announcement, Loring's wife Deb gave me a big hug and handed me Loring's badge. <clears throat> and she indicated that Loring was watching over me and it was it was time now it was up to me to get this done. So for the past nine months, and most people don't know this, <clears throat> I've been campaigning with Loring's badge in my pocket serving as a reminder to stay positive and to work to move the department forward in the way he would. Um, throughout the year, when I started to question things, when I was mentally trying to um, deal with some of the negative stuff with the campaign, um, I found myself reaching down to make sure that his badge was still there. And uh, I knew it was there all the way. So. Tonight, oh, the citizens of Dodge County, they voted for change. And um, Loring's work to make this campaign a successful one's done. And it's time for him, it's time for the badge to go back home. That night, I returned Loring's badge to death. It was time for him to go home. On the day I was sworn in as sheriff, I reinstated Mike Leanhart as my chief deputy, the position he held before. That's what Loring would have done to right a wrong, a step forward to help our office heal. Okay, Mike, raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, Michael Leonhart, I, Michael Leonhart, do solemnly swear that I will support the Constitution of the United States. Constitution of the State of Minnesota, Constitution of the State of Minnesota. 
and that I will faithfully and impartially discharge the duties of the office of chief deputy for Dodge County to which I have been appointed to the best of my knowledge and ability so help me God. As sheriff, my next mission was to get Loring recognized as a line of duty death in Minnesota. Now, when Loring died, I was in investigations, and I was the one assigned to his incident. The coroner explained to me after Loring's autopsy that he had an acutely enlarged heart. She explained it was likely due to acute daily stress. I told her there was no stress at home with him and Deb, but he'd been under an incredible amount of stress at work. Work stress that was more than he could bear in the end. The state and Lima agreed based on the history at the office and the fact that he died shortly after returning home from work that Loring's death would be deemed a line of duty death due to cumulative stress from work. We then applied to the federal government and uh, then appealed their denial of our request to recognize Loring's death as a line of duty death. Heart attacks caused by cumulative stress were something at the time the federal government didn't recognize with law enforcement deaths. Actually, they didn't recognize a lot of heart attacks that really should have been should have been recognized and honored at their level. We all wanted to see Loring's name on the National Law Enforcement Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., but that wasn't meant to be. To help you understand Loring's story, as uncomfortable as this has been to talk about, it was necessary to explain the actions of some in order to explain what Loring went through, to explain why we are where we're at, to help all of us understand the importance of not repeating history. Certainly, nobody wanted anyone to get hurt. Nobody could have foreseen what happened. The message of Loring's story isn't to find fault. It isn't to point fingers, to assign blame to anyone, to someone for his death. There's, there's no one person to blame or persons to blame for Loring not being here. Loring would have never wanted that, regardless of the circumstances. The message of Loring's story is an indictment. It's an indictment of a culture, a toxic culture. And with that indictment comes the importance of recognizing it, remembering it, and not repeating it. Loring fell victim to a toxic culture where micromanagement and mistrust, regardless of intent or accuracy over time, created undue stress in an already incredibly stressful field of work. One that created more conflict in the office than we had on the street. A culture of the past that may have worked in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it doesn't work today. A culture uneducated in the importance of mental health and well-being and making sure your staff is okay. A culture where it's okay not to be okay, frankly, because it's a, it was a culture that didn't know any better. We didn't know much about mental health back then. A culture where the very stress Loring was trying to protect everyone from slowly wore him down, and it frankly wore out his heart, a heart much bigger than, than any of us really knew at the time. Deb has continued to keep Loring's service and memory alive with the annual Loring Gunther Memorial Golf Tournament held every year in the fall. Every year since Loring passed away, 
We decided as a, a group, as a department, that we wanted to do something yearly around the anniversary of his passing to remember him by and remember who he was and the kind of person that he was. And Lauren was a very generous person. And so we kind of we came up with the idea that we would hold a golf tournament every year. Even for those of us who don't golf <laughs> or golf well, <laughs> which is the vast majority of us. <laughs> but uh, we wanted to do something and uh, to remember him and honor him. And so sort of the foundation of it is to raise money for uh, Toys for Tots of southeastern Minnesota, because that's something that we enjoyed participating in when he was alive. And we just thought it would kind of keep things local and it would be a good cause and it would be happy and uplifting. It wouldn't be a doom and gloom type thing. It would be a happy way to remember him and to have fun. And we do, we do have fun. So we do that every year on the anniversary of his passing, and we have also sort of branched out with that tournament as we've gotten better at it and more familiar with the whole fundraiser thing. And it kind of evolves a little bit from year to year. We've split the proceeds with setting up a scholarship for a locally enrolled law enforcement student. And uh, last year, we shared some of the proceeds with the law enforcement memorial that's being built at Soldiers Field in Rochester, Minnesota, um, which when that is complete, Loring's name will appear on that. And that that means a, a lot to me, and I know it means a lot to his friends, his department, his family. Um, and, you know, I'm, I think we're kind of contemplating this year, toying with the idea of maybe some of the proceeds uh, possibly going to the foundation that helps officers deal with stress because we recently lost an officer to suicide. He was a retired officer from Zombroda. And that is, that is a heartbreaking, you know. So I think, you know, we'd like to do something for them too if we can. It's never, you know, a huge amount of money, but it's something that I know Loring would be proud, proud to contribute. On November 17th, 2015, at our annual Sheriff's Office holiday party, we awarded Loring with the highest award our agency gives. It's the Medal of Honor. In appreciation and in recognition of his exemplary values of courage, sacrifice, selfless service, and patriotism to his family, to his friends, his co-workers, his community, his country, and his home. Years later, throughout our office, there are many reminders of Loring's influence. When you walk down our halls, in front of each office door, there's a, a mailbox outside on the wall. And we don't have names on our offices. We don't have titles on our office doors. We, we have Loring's badge on the mailboxes. It's his morning band on it with his name and his badge number. It's, it serves as a constant reminder to us that we have to take care of people, that we got to make sure that that w history doesn't repeat itself, that we that we ensure that we create and and develop and 
ensure a, a healthy working environment for our staff who, who already take on an incredibly stressful, the incredibly stressful challenge of this career, of this calling. We've added a memorial graphic to all of our squads with all four of our Fallen Heroes badges on it, including Loring's. His picture is displayed in our conference room. A metal badge with his number is displayed with a blue light backing it. That's also displayed in our conference room. In my office, I display his picture, his handcuffs, the white gloves of one of the honor guards from his funeral, and three spent rounds from the volley fired during the ceremony. I also have his $5 charge for whining sign that he uh, had his... <laughs> it just makes me laugh when I think about it. His, he had a $5 charge for a whining sign that he, he had right in the middle of his desk, right, right in front. So when you walked in, that's the first thing you saw. Of course, I was learning sense of humor. Um, so I have that sign displayed under his picture in my office. Now, there's a, a fake tree in my office that was his, as were a few of the art pieces on the wall, items that Deb suggested I keep there because my office used to be Loring's. His tree, his memorial tree growing just outside my office window, something I look at often. I love, I love checking it out in the spring when the leaves are just budding and coming out and, and the tree's coming back alive again. And I love the fall where uh, the tree's leaves are just bright and glowing and I don't know, and corny as it sounds, it, it, I don't know, it reminds me of Loring. It reminds me of his laughter, his smile, his, his just happy demeanor. It just makes me feel good. And my business card holder on my desk, on the front of it, it says Sheriff Scott Rose. On the back of it, the part that faces me when I'm sitting in that chair, it says, Loring 3123, your legacy lives on. Just a constant reminder to me what the, what the mission is, why, why we do what we do. It is interesting how there are celebrities out in the world that, and I'm not you know, equating him to a celebrity, but you know, there are celebrities out in the world that are revered for decades later. And that, and that's, that's fair. They're, they're a celebrity status, but it, it's pretty special. It's, it, it's very interesting when you have somebody who locally, everybody knows him. He was well known in the County. I mean, a lot of, I, I don't know really anybody that he may have arrested that any that had any angst or hated him, you know, for any amount of time. It was a special thing when you look back where he could have arrested somebody and they would have been okay with him, you know, on the next call. And so, you know, it is something special for someone, you know, in a local setting like this, you know, that you can bring his name up 10 years later, you can bring his name up probably 15, 20 years later, and there are gonna be people that are like, oh yeah, I'd love that guy, you know? And I, like I said, in a short period of time, he, he accomplished so much in, in that regard with the level of respect, not just within the department, but also within the community. And there's not a lot of people that can pull that off. You know, mainly a lot of us would just still miss his goofiness and, and his humor he brought to the office and shenanigans. And, but yeah, he's just, he's just missed. In addition to organizing the golf tournament, Deb also now speaks to law enforcement students about mental health and about stress management to make sure that they don't go through what Loring went through. It was about a year after uh, Loring passed away. Being that he, he used to work at the college with the law enforcement program, one of his colleagues from college had reached out to me and very delicately <laughs> asked me 
If I would be interested in speaking to the ethics class about what had happened to Loring, the effects of stress that had on Loring, the consequences that stress had on Loring, and I told him, the instructor that had contacted me, I said, hey, you know, as long as I can tell it how it really happened, I said, because it may turn off some of your candidates. It may scare some of them away because I'm going to speak to them like they're adults. doesn't matter how baby-faced they are in there. They need to understand. You know, you, bullets and vehicle accidents, they're not the only threat to you in this career. They are more immediate consequences, but stress, you know, you, ha you have to manage it, you have to recognize it, you have to get help for it because it just, it sits and it turns into poison. And, you know, so every year, once or twice a year, typically it's in the spring. Um, and I used to speak to a class with 70, 80 students in it. And in the past couple of years, I've maybe got 20 people in that audience. And that terrifies me because <laughs> where are we going to get officers, good officers? And I see firsthand, if, if there's nobody sitting in those classes, there's nobody qualified to do the job. So then what? One thing I do want to say for all the listeners, whether you are in law enforcement, you have a family member in law enforcement, or you have nothing to do with law enforcement, I just ask that people don't pity law enforcement survivor families for their loss, but rather they respect them for their sacrifice and the sacrifices of their loved one. That is the best way to honor my husband. Respect, not pity. Because respect goes a long way. It really does. You know, and I have people that know, that thank me uh, and say, thank you for your sacrifice. They say that to me, and I'm still walking. But that means a lot to me because it recognizes that there, there was more than one death that occurred that day. And in my opinion, it was preventable. Loring has probably taught us just as many lessons after death as before. Before he died, he taught us compassion, trust, honor, integrity, the importance of doing what's right, even when it's not always easy, when it's not always comfortable. He taught us friendship. He taught us dedication. He taught us loyalty. He taught us to have fun, to take chances, to laugh, to not take yourself too seriously. In death, he taught us the importance of stress management, of understanding and recognizing that it's okay to not be okay, that we need to talk through our problems and our challenges, that as strong as we think we might be, we can't always handle the stress alone, that cumulative stress can kill. Loring's name is listed on the Southeast Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Wall in Rochester, Minnesota. 
and he's remembered each year during the State Law Enforcement Memorial Program at the Capitol during Police Week. It's my hope, and it's Deb's hope, that Loring's story serves as an eternal reminder to law enforcement, to students, to officers, to administration, that we all have a responsibility to create a healthy, positive working environment, a working culture where we encourage our staff to share and to challenge ideas so that together we can all learn and grow and become better cops. A culture where staff understands that it's okay not to be okay. A culture where we talk through our stress and our challenges, where we take care of each other. A healthy culture that will produce healthy cops that the community will trust when they need us the most. Thanks for listening and letting us share Loring's story with you. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.